Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Doghouse Podcast with Adam and Jimmy. This is your host, Jimmy Rogers. Adam is not with us. Adam has stuff going on with his family. Got his little girls out, spending time with them here before Christmas. So we're going to move right into the Pat Burns Andy Atar Workshop uh, Q&A in front of a live audience. So here we go. Hey, Adam, before we get started, let's don't forget to mention our sponsors. Yeah, the guys who helped bring this podcast. We couldn't do it without them. I guess we could, but it makes it a lot easier, you know? That's right. Shin Gear, waterfowl equipment that's built better. Made by waterfowlers for waterfowlers. Go get you some Shin Gear. Miss Melissa at Duck Dog Clothing. For all your Duck Dog Clothing needs, podcast gear, check out Melissa. Our website at Duck Dog Clothing. Dropbox, go in, buy a t-shirt or a hat, supports us. We appreciate it. Don't forget your wet mud mats and your Kong bumpers. And if you're not Kong, Jim, you're wrong. Soggy Dog Gear, SoggyDogGear.com. Oh, Doug over there at Soggy Dog, he's a dog man. For all your dog training equipment, he's got it there. Go to SoggyDogGear.com. Be sure on your flat collars to use the discount code, the doghouse, to get your discount on your flat collars. G&G Motors. Columbia, Kentucky. See Chaz Giles for all your large, small, new and used tractors. Chaz Giles at GNG Motors, Columbia, Kentucky. Guys, don't forget to check out Tetra, the hearing system that works. Tetra, hear the hunt. Hear the hunt. The Sullivan family has been with us a long time, guys. It's no longer Sullivan Motors. It's Sullivan Kirk Automotive, Sullivan Kirk outfitters for your lift kits and etc etc also new and used vehicles those guys who have supported us a long time we appreciate it if you support them to the people listening to the podcast they can't see us these questions are from participants here doing the workshop with you guys i kind of got a little ahead of myself there so excellent stuff fill everybody in. and we have a live audience with us tonight uh watching us and listening to us do this so uh the next question y'all ready for another one you bet all right the next one is uh what to do with a dog that becomes and we hear this all the time test wise uh trains great great in training uh but wild at a test i mean that's that's the probably one of the most so the question was out there what do you what do we do with the dog that trains great but is out of control at a test or a trial. That's right. You don't get it started. It, it The number one thing that I harp to my clients is there's always a risk of running young dogs at weekend events. There's always a negative to it. There's a lot of dogs out there with a lot of horsepower that should not be run away from training too often. They pull away too many bad habits. So, and it's getting harder than ever. I, there's a hunt test almost every weekend now. I mean, I'm pretty soon they're going to put one on Christmas. And, and a field trial. And a field trial. And they would both fill up. And they'd both fill up, <laughs> you know. Um, and in the hunt test world, there is junior, there's just so much for people to do. And, I mean, it's really simple. Number one, you should never run your dog on a weekend event when it's young if you think it's getting if it's taking away bad things like that's the first rule 
How many of the dogs here acted like they were at a field trip? Yeah. Or a hunt test? They were. They thought they so it was total game day. So finding a way to uh, come and 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 challenge yourself and 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 go to exciting atmospheres. I'll, let me give you a couple of examples. The question didn't say that, but so many people will say, well, my dog's collar-wise. He knows it's training. And there's dogs that I trained, and they, I think they're situational-wise. In other words, they're used to your normal training scenario. Some of these dogs, when I went to a pre-national and the atmosphere was just like this and we traveled across the country and we trained with dogs that they didn't know. and they Different smells. And, 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 and I can remember making a number of corrections, and these dogs still acted like they were at a field trail. So they, once I changed the atmosphere, how about uh, the group here, the, uh, the A group, the tra there's a, some amateur training groups here that really go all out. And you remember Judy and the gang, they would, they've got great grounds here, but they would pack up, drive somewhere, get a hotel, air it, do every routine they would do with the intention of then training. And training at a place you wouldn't even have to stay in a hotel. But they did. Went through all of the trouble mm -hmm. of all of the triggers that happen when you travel, air at a different place, stay in a hotel, train on new grounds, bring new dogs and new people. So they went the extra yard to create an, a, an atmosphere or situation different than what the dogs were used to in an effort to create natural behavior that they would on a weekend and teach the dog to behave differently. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the single most damaging thing that can happen to a field trial dog, that at an early age, they realize they don't have to act like they do in training. Um, my, my kennel has, has for, for that reason, hardly ever runs a lot of derbies. Now, I've trained at least two national derby champions, and, and I feel like I'm really capable of training a derby dog, and we train them. Um, like, like they should be trained. But there can be so many things that young dogs take away from a field trial that aren't productive. So that's, that is the number one thing. And the second thing is sort of what you said, is, you know, go to somebody else's training group every once in a while and let them set the test up. Let, 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 let things go a little different. Put the holding line a little further from the line. I mean, some, sometimes, and it's unfortunate, but your group is so small, you never spend any time in a holding blind. I mean, that in itself is a whole lot different than at a field trial. You go to a national amateur, you're in a holding blind 30 or 50 minutes before you run sometimes. Uh, it's, that's a whole part of it, and we, we, we practice on it. We, they keep dogs in holding blinds that long, you know, prior to that. Um, but I guess I get getting back to not being so anxious to prove your dog at a young age. There are a few dogs I've had. I could two dogs come to my mind that actually did better the more trials they ran. It was an absolute amazing. And they didn't train very well, really. Um, and they were two of the better dogs that were around at the time, Lottie and Baby. Like, you know, most dogs, the more trials they run, they start slipping whistles, they're not watching their birds, they pull out of the water a little early, maybe mouthy with the birds, whatever. Lottie got better and better and better every field trial she ran, every series. It was like, this is why I'm here. She had that tremendous game day skill set, unbelievable. Finished one, three nationals. 
um, and 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 baby who was who just passed away a year ago had how many points? Well, she had fifty. Well, she had fifty points in one year. Right? Fifty points in one. She was just an amazing dog, and she. Fifty amateur points. She, she also did not suffer from running a lot of field trials. She actually marked better. She she was she oh it was, and I wish more dogs were like that. But they were the exception. They were the exception. Mm-hmm. Don't don't you rarely run more than two trials in a row? So we try to go two on one off, two on one off, two on two off. If we run three in a row, we usually take two weeks off, which, you know, this isn't in the question, but what do you do with a dog who is trial-wise? You know, I, I, so much time in dog training, that's like, it's easy just to, easier to say just what not to do. You get you get off of uh, two trials in a row and your dog's been a jerk, been a big butthead, and he's like breaking or, or not getting in the water or whatever. You can't wait for Monday morning to just tear his head off. Probably not the right thing. What dogs learn pretty quickly is that Friday, Saturday, and Sunday are for goofing off, and Monday I get my butt kicked. So by the end of the butt-kicking session, they're like, yeah, yeah, hurry up and get this done so I can be a jerk on Friday. So what, what's the right thing? So, Usually Monday you do some easy work, so they you ease them more into a natural state mm-hmm. instead of go out there and lay for them for what you're mad at them from the previous weekend. The most unproductive correction is to correct some of that stuff are dogs that have already felt intimidated because they know what's coming, and then you make things harder for them, and then you kind of you cold cock them and cheap shot them. It, it is, to me, in my opinion, the most unproductive part of dog training ever. So you stay away from it. Dogs that make mistakes like the dogs did today, they did it in a, in a, in a, and they, like they own the mistake. They were excited about doing it. Um, and they got corrections on a, in a, in a free, freer mind. They weren't suspecting anything. Um, those are lasting corrections. Those are, those kind of corrections. And what we're aiming for is to correct dogs during the week so they'll be better on the weekends. Right, they, we want these things to be lasting. We want the takeaway to change behavior for more than one day. We want it to change it for a long time. Good stuff. Do all right. We'll move on to another one. Great. Uh, best way to handle uh, whining noise and movement on the mat. Well, you're an expert on that. You better take. <laughs> so that the one. question was best way to address whining noise and movement on the mat. That's good. <laughs> well, the noise thing, I mean, that's a, a whole workshop in itself. However, you know, the thing that I dislike doing more than anything is making a correction and then sending the dog anyways, well, you know. So I think some dogs get to the point where they move, they get in trouble, but they still get the bird. And that just becomes the pattern. I think the best thing to do is deny the retrieve. Don't let them, if you're going to say, all right, here's the, here's the standard and I'm going to stick to it. Um, if I make a correction, they don't get the mark. And there's times where you actually have to make things less exciting so you have an opportunity to reward the better behavior. So hopefully at some point they connect the dots that if I sit still, I get what I want. Not just I get in trouble if I don't sit still. So it is a, sometimes you don't want to overstimulate it. Now, and sometimes with these young dogs, 
you know, maybe you don't do some of these, especially young, young dogs. You start to see some of this whiny and noisy behavior. Sometimes I'm going to quit throwing birds, and I may even quit marking them for a while. So you, you don't necessarily, you know, want to perpetuate that, and that pro- behavior. And progress their blind work? Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, it's, and it, it's kind of an epidemic today, the, the noise thing. And there's different degrees of noise, and not all noise is created equal. Um, but, you know, the, I think the most troublesome noise is the noise when the birds are being thrown. And, but I think more than anything is, I think a lot of people just don't have a high enough standard about zero tolerance for movement from the start. And it's not just when they get to the mat, it's in, it's in general. We saw a lot of poor healing mechanics coming out of the blind. And sometimes uh, you, you got to stay out of that tempting trap of saying, I want to see if they can do the test. Ooh. I'm going to let this go. I saw a couple dogs. You could tell the handler didn't correct them because he wanted them to see the mark. Then he corrected them after the movement. Yeah. That to me is like, forget about the mark. If you're dedicated to change this behavior... Yeah. Screw the test. Quit trying to do the test. Work on this. And so I think that that's the biggest thing that people get in trouble for because, and the inconsistency in a standard. I think that's the, today we're going to let them move, but tomorrow we're fed up. And then the next day we want to see if they do the test or we let them move again. So I think you have to establish a standard, stick to it. And maybe some of these dogs that you've let move for so long, Put a tab on them and teach them how not to move. I think sometimes the habit just gets so ingrained that they don't think it's wrong. That's just what they do all the time. So what happens when you increase your standard? You see a dog that's like uh, Ike today, okay, just like that kind of dog, and you start to increase your standards so they don't move. Like it's typical that dog will maybe start in a little bit of a protest. Will start to make some noise. Mm-hmm. Like the energy's got to go somewhere. Right. So then you go through the simple things like, you know, deprive them of the retrieve, maybe make a like a physical correction, quiet, quiet, quiet. Make them run a blind first. Make them run a blind first. Right. Okay. And it uh, then what happens, right? Like and then if if that doesn't work or things are getting a little he's getting a little more anxious at the line, then that's when you would take his marks away and like let's just do blinds for two weeks in a row or when we start our marks again we're going to use white bumpers with no shot just to go through the motions i, I actually had a, a dog that was so bad uh, i didn't throw birds at all i just put let i had the gunners walk out and throw the birds come out of the holding blind and i went mark it mark it mark it and i just sent them yep. and um it was really effective for a while um and also the discussion i, w- I want to hear your comment about when these puppies are young and and how we hold them yeah. before we let them retrieve. Like, talk a little bit about and that. And they're flailing around. Yeah, and, yeah. And, they, and, and all of a sudden, you just cut them loose. Blah! And, and we teach them almost to be idiots, right? Yeah, so, like, what advice would you give somebody, like, if they have that kind of puppy? Well, you know, again, and you're excited to, like, oh, boy, I love it. You love to see the desire. And the next thing you know, uh-oh, we're in a little bit of trouble here. I think that kind of puppy you... Uh, yeah, I think oftentimes 
the traffic cop thing where you have the puppy sit in a remote position and you mm-hmm. throw things and you teach them and you don't throw exciting marks. You throw, you're trying to just develop the habit of not flailing around. I mean, just think for a moment what the difference between, let's say you have a four-month-old puppy and you're trying to start it marking and it is really pissed off that you're holding it. And you, you've had them before and, they're, and then you finally let them go and they go, oh, thank you. And you call that dog back and you shake it up and you try it again and he's more frustrated than ever he's barking and pretty soon he, he you grab him and he's just starting to scream because he just wants to go get the bird he's overstimulated he's yeah. overstimulated what's the difference between that and spending a little extra time teaching him how to use a play sport right mm-hmm. what you can i have taught like a nine-week-old puppy to get on a play sport i mean most of us have it's really simple it's on the web go to connie cleveland and pat nolan stuff it take you 10 minutes i mean it's amazing as long as your dog is food motivated and what's the difference between the first scenario that i said and then you teach them how to play sport and then you teach them that they can't get the retrieve until you tell them because of the play sport will help them kind of anchor into place maybe with the help of a little bit of a lead to it, it is such a difference. So if I were to see a bowel to a puppy, I would stay away from that pressure. But so, there are a lot of people that say, I'm just going to kind of blanket that dog right now, and I'm going to teach it right off the bat not to make noise. And that's not, that's just not the way I would do it. Good stuff. Okay. Yeah. Good deal. All right. Uh, Elson, back over on blinds. Uh, talk more about ping-ponging on blinds. And appropriate handling techniques. Well, ping-ponging, you're thinking, the question was, talk about ping-ponging on blinds and appropriate techniques on how to work on that. I think a lot of times ping-ponging on blinds is handlers maybe not reading the situation. I said the best way to get out of a ping-pong is don't get in a ping-pong. So, oh, okay, that sounds right. <laughs> reading some of the lack of rearward mode. Uh, momentum early using verbal cast to generate rear momentum and sometimes letting a dog get off line enough to re- leave room for the next cast and not being a slave to the line and, and, th- and using a bigger field so yes. you can do that right a flatter field or non-factor and, field and i say like there's certain types of blinds tight keyholes blinds that are tight to guns where you that really bring up ping-ponging uh you know I think some uh, oftentimes you going to a momentum generating cast, which is tip, uh, typically a verbal back. I say to myself, I want to do it one cast sooner than I think I need it. So that's the idea of not getting in a ping pong. What? Say it again. Okay. I'm Did you guys get that? So you got to pay attention. If you're not paying attention, say it again. I said, on those types of blinds where you where they're they're going to generate ping pongs. Yeah. Yeah keyholes, things like that, where you're, yeah. you go to a verbal cast, one cast sooner than you, than it's obvious. If wow. you wait till the momentum is broken down. So I, I, I can't tell you how many times I said, go with a verbal. They said, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because you waited three casts too late to start it. Right. Now you're in it. And now like, all right, your only option when you're totally in a ping pong is completely let them get offline to leave room for the next cast. However, if you see it's the budding beginning of a ping pong, in other words, that's that first cast that they give you a little more than you anticipate, you got to realize, okay, this dog is on the edge. 
He's probably doing it most of the time because he's trying to be real conscientious and change direction for you. So most ping-pongs are a dog trying hard. And sometimes the more whistles you blow, the more he thinks, well, he needs me to go somewhere else. So now he's just trying to do the right thing. And you probably didn't anticipate it or see it happening early enough. And so maybe that's not the answer you want. But I think is if handlers can see the beginning of those sooner or anticipate them and use momentum generating cast a little earlier, they can they, they can head off ping pong sooner. And being conscious of, as you're developing young dogs on their blinds, being conscious of the most important part of their blind work is their momentum. And... Um, and not introducing uh, momentum breakdown factors too soon. Or, said a little different, not overcorrecting for uh, failures and maybe uh, too difficult to blinds for a young dog. You know, one of my favorite things we're, we're going to be setting up for here real soon is, is a good land tune-up drill, a series of land blinds that oftentimes... They are ping-pong creators. Mm-hmm. But once you kind of work through it and you teach them how to get out of that, that's been some of the best aha moments for both the handlers and dogs for me. And tell them what a tune-up drill is, just in case. Tune-up drill being a, seri- a series of multiple blinds, typically six to eight of them, run over the course of three to five days. I'd say four to six is more typical that have similar factors and you know usually like if you're going to catch a corner of the mound or you got a keyhole you're you're addressing a similar factor two or three times within those blinds and oftentimes the beginning of the tune-up drill you blow a gajillion whistles but they get a little bit better and they get a little bit better and you learn to communicate better and eventually do they learn they learn kind of where the blinds are but it isn't like doing marked blinds. It's not like pattern blinds. They're too complicated to have them remember. Right. Everyone. So they, but, you know, oftentimes three days in, you may not get all six blinds good, but you may get one or two. Aha you, moments. Aha moments. That that cast that gets tight to the gun, but not to the other side. Those keyhole blinds. So, the, and I say a lot of those blinds on tune-up drills are the types of blinds that create yo-yos. And you, you teach them how to get out of it, what it means to give verbal cast, and you teach yourself how to read it better. You know, we're, um, so I don't know where Sylvia is. Are you, are you here? Okay, so uh, one time Pat and I and Judy Acock are doing a seminar. It was down at Judy's. And we were in, it was raining, and we were in this, like a little chat thing. And I, so Pat said, explain to the group what a tune-up is so i said what what he said sort of a little better than he said it <laughs> <laughs> and um and then i said so i i said now, now listen now these are complicated and I, I had a picture and i you know it looks like it, it's incredible complicated on a, on a picture and it's pretty complicated at the beginning it was this was an all-age tune-up but, and i said now listen the mo- one of the most important things is that you get this thing started right and usually the first day for particularly sensitive 
dogs doesn't go really well. And you have to let them know without enabling them that you're on their side. And this isn't about, you know, you're going to force them 36 times and, you know, because it could go that way because it's so complicated. And I said, I'll even go as far as if I get a no-go. I may give them another shot at it and send them again. Or I may even go identify the blind just to get it started right. And Judy raises her hand and she stands up and she says, Andy, up until this point, I was going to put all my young dogs with you, but I'm never going to put a dog with you again. Because <laughs> it bothered her so much that I would let a no-go go. And today, uh, I don't even know where you are because I can't see you, but your dog actually no-goed and you just said, you know what, she didn't see it. I'm just going to move up a little bit and send her again. So, Which we thought was exactly the right thing. Yeah, which we thought was exactly but. But I just, you just when you explained that tune-up, I just remembered that story. Yeah, okay. funny. So staying on that, uh, Mike Garrity asked today, uh, training blinds and test blinds, how you treat them Ooh. difference? Oh, what a great R- question. Repeat the question. Right. What's the difference between a training blind and a test blind? Uh, who asked that question? Mike Garrity. Boy, that are you here, Mike? That's just a great question. I love that question. And too many people set too many test blinds up a test blind versus a training blind a test blind is a blind that uh, example would be it has a lot of hidden spots where you can't see the dog um, makes it difficult to correct dogs um, mostly the out of sight features what I think about when it's a test blind um, a good training blind has really hard factors where you can stay in touch with the dog at all times they can hear the whistles and they can see you that's a good training blind. Also, a good training blind is is um, is not really set up to be contrary to what the dog wants to do. Test blinds have a tendency lately to be a little bit more contrary to what a trained dog wants to do. For example, remember that angle entry water blind we did? Um, where you ran by the water, caught just the end, way yes. at the end of the pond? Yeah, yesterday. We ran that yesterday. Now, that's not really a contrary blind, but part the beginning of it can be kind of contrary for a dog who wants to jump in the water. You see judges, out of frustration sometimes, setting blinds up that almost penalize the dogs that are trained well. So, to, that, and, and that doesn't mean they shouldn't do it, that, because dogs should handle no matter what. They can see you and hear the whistle. They should handle that's what it is to be at a field trial, right? And I appreciate that. But a good test blind, excuse me, a good training blind is incorporates the challenges we want to work on where you can see things. And when a dog tries really hard, it will work out for them. Good stuff. You know, tra- training blinds, I like to run multiple blinds that complement each other, that you pick you pick a theme and you gradually, if it's crosswind, you go a little more crosswind. If it's So each, maybe the first one isn't super hard, but they gradually get harder. But it's the same lesson throughout the blinds. That's something that you're not apt to see in a trial, but I think it's a great way to, to train. You know, the, what should be asked right after that is, what's the difference between handling at a, and training versus handling on a test, at a test? That is the, the real meat of the thing. Let's do Can that. I ask my own question? Please. I just asked the question, okay? Um, so, and I, I have fallen guilty of this for years. I really root for the dogs when I run blinds. 
And I, when I run blinds in training, oftentimes I'll sort of forget where the blind is because I, if the dog finally takes a good cast, I'm going to let him enjoy that cast because he finally did something right. And that's good. I, I would encourage you to do that sometimes in training. The judges don't like that at a field trial, however. <laughs> you know, there's a line you have to kind of adhere to. And some judges are more strict than others. So handling at a – and secondly, the difference is you don't get two shots at it at a field trial. When you have that keyhole or you have a small pot of water, you don't give that really thin cast and, like, this is the training cast, and if you don't get in, I'm going to correct you. You give the cast that's going to ultimately and positively change his direction, which is oftentimes just a little bit more cast, maybe a little firmer whistle. Um, in training, oftentimes, uh, when a dog gets on a point and has to re-enter, we may give them the chance to do it on their own. We would never do that at a field trial. We would always blow a second whistle because you don't have a second chance. Good stuff, buddy. Okay. You know, you're a lot smarter than you look. <laughs> <laughs> so, you all have talked a lot about uh, standing in the neutral position, forward, back. Can you expand on that a little bit to, uh, what, why and how you use that well okay so pointing a dog is like aiming a, lo- a lot of things instinctually like shooting a basketball throwing a baseball archery when you did when you when you shot without sights so it, it all starts with you have to anchor and do the you know if you don't shoulder a shotgun at the same point point every time it's not going to shoot where you're looking so it starts with the consistency in having a dog sit to your side because it's difficult to look down at your side and tell where they're they're pointed it's easier if you're standing behind them like we are sometimes and staring right down their spine so the importance of the neutral position is the consistency in where they sit so you can accurately point them which is describe that so my neutral position where I want to start is I want that dog's shoulder socket at my knee. So I have room to move forward if I so choose or back up and move rearward to pull the dog. So anytime I move ahead of neutral, I'm creating an influence away from me. And if I'm rear of neutral, I'm creating influence towards me. So there's a consistency in that. And so if I back up a, a foot length, my foot length behind their shoulder, my intent is to shift the dog's weight. And if he's on my left, shift their weight to the right and, in, and, and, and communicate to look right. If I want to step ahead of that position, I'm trying to do the same thing away from me. So I'm just trying to create a consistency in my ability to point and communicate where I want them to go. When dogs tend to sit ahead of you, most of the time it's because they want to run the show and they don't want... And if you're in the back seat, in other words, if you're far back, you don't have as strong a presence with them. I want them to know I'm there and we're a team. And sometimes I'm going to grab the wheel and sometimes I'm going to let you do what you want. But I'm going to... I, but if I'm not in, the, in, in, in what I think is a consistent position... I think it compromises my ability to do that. And we, half the dogs today, we talked about that. 
And we talked, you, you would, we both said you had to fight for that. They, when they come back from the last bird down, they have to put themselves in that position. That's, that's what the goal is. If they're going to arrive at that position, wherever you're facing, where if you're facing in this direction, they're going to come back facing that direction, and the neutral position is their shoulders are at your knee. You know, and we talk, uh, and that's the way that first look happens. And I tell you, when I watched, we talked about Judy Acock, one of the all-time great handlers and certainly one of my heroes. I watch her sometimes, and you watch how accurately she her dogs are pointed and it looks so effortless but it was one of those things that or it was only effortless because there was a lot of hard work to get to that point you know what what was what's the comment about it's one of those things it's that hard work that you do when nobody's watching that pays off when everybody is watching and that's just that kind of little things was a capus that you say you take care of the little things the big things then take care of themselves yeah. and that's one of those things good deal uh one more question here uh please explain the role of conditioning we talked about this a little bit oh, yeah. yesterday uh roading swimming uh in the dogs and training uh, do you do it at the beginning of the season throughout the season uh, is there a difference between trial dogs and hunt test dogs okay I want one of you guys to weigh in on the hunt test dog. Let me tell you what we do. Uh, we and, and we get guidance from uh, uh, an excellent gal, Dr. Janelle Appel, who makes her living uh, in the uh, direction of keeping our dogs safe and healthy through good conditioning. Uh, we just adore her. There's a few other people uh, like her in this country. That uh, It's, it's a, a relatively new part of our sport which I think is really important. Here's what we typically do. Uh, between January 1st and April, we rode twice a week. We'll rode Wednesday afternoon. We'll do a quick setup in the morning and rode Wednesday afternoon, and then we'll rode on Saturday. Uh, and in the summer, we end up usually roading about one and a half times a week. Every other week, we'll rode twice. Here's what roading is if you don't know it. And Janelle has a great website that, that has some video on it. I, I think there's some video on there. Um, we, we basically, we harness our dogs and we run them at between five and seven miles an hour for, um, it probably starts at 10 minutes and the most we'll do is 35 or 40 um, at that same rate. It's called Long, slow, LSD, long, slow distance? Long, slow distance training. And um, I, I don't really don't want to speak too much on her, uh, what she's good at. But what it does is our dogs are sprinters in general, and this conditions them in every other important way other than by sprinting. And it's safer for them. It's better for their joints. And it's mentally really cool for them and it gives me a chance to spend some time with a dog and not worry about anything but just being with them most of the dogs absolutely love it uh there's some great sidebars from it um we've been able to identify injury because of it um we identify what condition they're in and and mostly in how long it takes them to recover um what's another advantage there's just so well, many. certainly injury prevention. The be- mm-hmm. I mean, that that's not ju- 
that's been known in humans. The better shape you're in, the less likely you are to get hurt. And and was it Vince Lombardi that said fatigue makes cowards of us all? Mm-hmm. You do some of these big tests, yeah, they're going to give in to the factors when they're gassed. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's just the plain safety factor there, that not overheating. And I'll tell you, um, it, there's a significant difference. These dogs get in shape fast, but they get out of shape fast. And, you know, we saw some dogs really overheated. And when you see a truly fit dog, it's significant in their ability to focus and concentrate on a third and fourth bird on a big test because they're not as tired. Yeah, it, uh, in early part of my career, I got, you, you know, I've been doing this for quite a long time, and you think about all the things you didn't know for a long period of time. This is one thing I wish I would have known sooner. And really the, the father of this idea for me um, was a good friend of ours. Uh, his name is Arlie Reynolds, and you can look him up. He's, he's an amazing man. He was a musher. I think I talked about him once before. But after spending some time with him, it was so clear to me that any dog that had any type of significant training program needed something like this. Now, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to turn it over to one of you guys. I can't imagine why being in the hunt test would preclude you from having all those wonderful things about it. Go ahead, Tyler. I do it. Um, So we we wrote them just like we were talking about, the same five to seven. But we got all that from Ray or Paul. So we kind of piggybacked off of y'all. And and I think the biggest, it's a stress relief. Oh, absolutely. So so the dogs that's getting in a lot of trouble in training, man, they just love it. And we like the harness system because you don't ever have to correct them. They're not running way out in front or behind. They're just relaxed, and, and they'll go as long as you let them go. So it's not playtime, but, I mean, it's – How many dogs do you do at a time? We Sometimes we'll do up to eight. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. But four is our, our thing. And, and something we really like to do is we, we bracket them. So you've got some that pull harder than others, so they tire out faster. So you can't put a little dog with a big dog. Because you, you, if you're not careful, you'll make your whole crew of dogs the weakest link. So you, the ones that can go the hardest, you start grouping them together so that you can always be challenging them. When did he grow up? I, I knew this guy <laughs> when he was 14 years old. That was good. You know, I... I need in, being here with you. In early 2000s, I was sponsored by Purina and I said to Purina I said I want to talk to your best nutritionist and it was Arlie Reynolds and I realized I knew a lot about teaching dogs to do blinds and marks but I didn't know much about conditioning and nutrition so in 2006 I spent almost a year in Alaska working for Dr. Reynolds in the winter in the winter winter, and I watched what truly fit dogs look like and it was it was game-changing for me the one other thing that, that we didn't talk about is conditioning in the water. Get, getting dogs, swimming them with a kayak. One of the best ways to get dogs better on water blinds in these big water marks is getting them to be stronger swimmers and more comfortable in the water. So there's a hu- another huge benefit to that. Just spending more time in the water. Yeah. yeah. And I'll tell you what, they, most dogs, when you jump in a kayak or a canoe and they... I mean, they go wild. They love it. And 
the more fun they have in the water and the better swimmers they are is directly proportional to how much trouble they get in the water because they don't want to swim. And it's just, you know, it's a win-win deal. They're in better shape, and they do better. It's yeah. a, I, would, I mean, it's a, I wouldn't think of training dogs without doing some form of conditioning. Absolutely. And, and the hunt test game, your blinds are usually always last. It's just, just normally it is. So if you've got a real hard, cheaty water blind at the end and your dog's gas going into it, they're cheating because they're gas, not because they're naturally cheater. I mean, yeah. I mean, we've seen that like, yeah. through our grant. Yeah. You know, they always have those real marshy, muddy, where the dog's virtually crawling to that thing. And they're trying to get out. It's not that they're trying to be bad. They they give out. Get some air. Yeah, they yeah they just want some relief from running. You know, all week. So conditioning has become a big part of Tyler and I both crew. We we both. And I'm totally in on what Tyler said. It's you become you develop a relationship with your crew of dogs different than at any other time. You become part of the pack, and so it is such a, a a an enriching part of the relationship, and it is. Uh, uh, such a mental relief for dogs that are getting pushed hard in other ways. So is it hard for you guys to give up training? Like it, that costs that you a hard. setup, mm-hmm. right? You know, and so like right now I have quite a few older open dogs. So they shouldn't be trained five days a week, three tests a day. So putting, inserting, uh, you know, a 30-minute road once or twice a week fits into their schedule really good. But you take a dog like that, Ike, like I'm going to be having Ike here. Like he's, he's leaving him here. I'm going to have him for the rest of his life and make him a really good dog, Don. <laughs> he's going to be a field champion and really good. But, um, like, if I have a choice between roading him or running him on an extra set of blinds, I mean, isn't do you ever have that kind of, like, I probably should just be doing a test instead of roading with those young guys that, like, have a lot of energy? Or do you say they – Roading is so important that I'm just going to do this. I got plenty of time for blinds. I think is like naturally being a worker. You think you need to run more blinds and do more marks, but I I value the benefit of roading enough now in in my career to say it's it's worth giving up that blind or mark to go and road. Well, good for you. And I, Tyler may do it more throughout the year. Most of the mines in the spring when they come back, and then once we get up and running, we're running so often, so much. I don't road. Through the summer. I mean, do you rode your whole kennel? Usually, my older dogs, my big runners, my young dogs are getting a lot more activity, so they're not they're not rode as much. They do, but just not as much. It's the older crew getting ready for the grand, getting ready to start qualifying for the master national. They've come back. They've been duck hunting, eating honey buns. It's time to go. To <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you, when you truly see a fit dog, it, it it's it's really impressive. You know, and oh, yeah. uh, and I'll tell you, uh, you talk about Arlie Reynolds. One of the St. Louis Nationals, he comes to the National. Oh, the, the first one he ever saw. And Arlie's like the nicest guy, and he and he hate and he and he comes up to me kind of sheepishly, and he said to me, "Pat, I kind of hate to tell you this." I said, "What's that, Marley?" He said, "I think sixty percent of the dogs running this National are clinically obese." I thought he said eighty percent. I was there, but. Really? Clinically that, obese. He said, talk about your cruciate disease. Yeah. <laughs> but he said that. I said, these are the top 100 dogs in North America, and he thought 60% of them were overweight? Mm. 
from his opinion, and this guy's got all the credentials. And he worked for Prana. I mean, he was, yeah, he, yeah, right. And a mush. chief of nutrition so, at Cornell University. I mean, he he's got the, his expertise in exercise physiology and everything is unsurpassed. And I, I got to so say, when he said that, I said, "Whoa!" Well, and not soon after that, I th- think there was a significant change, and I think more people uh, sought a more fit dog uh there were a lot of discussions about what a fit dog looks like from the top hourglass uh, uh rounder but uh, you want to you want to uh, between the hip bones you wanted it horizontal you correct. did not want concave yep. or convex you yep. wanted it flat so and if free- it was round there was people always look at the rib cage but arlie always looked at the at the hips more than the ribs and but Perina published information such as you should see the back couple ribs. Mm-hmm. Like really? Like this is a dog food company who will make money if you overfeed your dog. So and I, I think there was a really good move. And I, I I know we have more injury than ever. And I when I first started when we first started dog training, my first ten years one cruciate, one cruciate. You know what it was? Steely Dan. Oh yeah. How about that dog? Linden Strandberg's yep. dog. And, you know, the next 10 years, and I, I don't know if I should blame it on him or not, probably is true, is Lean Mac. We, I started getting a lot of Lean Mac dogs. Really? Mm-hmm. I, and I, you know, has he got a whole bunch of frozen semen left and I'm going to get sued by this? <laughs> this, is, this is not a uh, scientific think, thing. Uh, well, there's certain bloodlines, and they're working on trying to figure out. And I'll tell you what, you know, we eliminated hip dysplasia for the most part. Mm-hmm. But cruciate injuries, elbow stuff, well, we've got some work to do. And yeah. You know, you think about, like, in the NFL, there's more injuries than ever. Is it because it's reported more? Is it, you know, there's just so, like, I'm not quite sure. I just know that our, our dogs are hurt a lot more, it seems like to me. Maybe I'm more sensitive to it. Um, but I think we're heading in a good direction. I think this conditioning thing is really, like, I'm so glad to hear you guys are so vested in it. Um, and I, th- I think it's really important. And I think do- uh, doctors, uh, Janelle and people like that are real helpful more than ever. I think we're just gotten smarter. Yeah. I think we're taking better care of our dogs. We're using ramps. Because back in the old days, we'd get to take, take a dog off the top thing. We would just kind of hold them, and they'd hit the ground, and they wouldn't hit. But, you know, we, they, we're just more careful about getting dogs on and off trucks now. I remember the first time I put a, sta- a dog on a stakeout chain. We'd put them away wet all the time because we didn't even know any better. And, you know, we, we had a dog with a hot spot, and the vet said, well, try to dry them off before you put them in. I'm like, well, I've just got time to the bumper, so I don't have to towel them, you know. And they're like, oh, I'll be son of a gun. Isn't that a good idea? Now, bird dog guys have been doing it forever. We saw gang lines down in Florida when, yeah. you know. But we never did that when, when at least I didn't. Do you, do you remember? Yeah, correct. We never did. And now you come to my truck, I, I got probably more stakeout chains than I got holes in my truck. It's the dogs that, like, stay out all day, you know. What's well, good stuff? Have Very we kept good. everybody late enough? Yeah, I was going to say that gets us to the end of the questions. So if y'all have anything else you want to talk about, Tyler, you have anything? And we now do we have questions? We could go on for days, but we've done about an hour and a half, hour and twenty five minutes. So well, that's usually enough. If you y'all bet. Good with we, that, we, we got to get these guys up early tomorrow. We got work to do. We got, we got some do. field champions to make out mm-hmm. here. Hey, thank you guys for being here. Yeah, guys, thank do you. we have anything there that we need? Time to roll. Well, good night, everybody, and thank you. Thank you guys for coming on the Doghouse Podcast with us. Great pleasure. It was great. I got to be on my first Doghouse. (laughs) All right, my friend.
And guys, don't forget, go check out our new website, thedoghousepod.com. Um, you can submit questions, see all of our guys that sponsor our show. Click, 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 boom, go buy you some stuff from those guys. And see us on web, on, on the face page over there at Facebook, The Doghouse Podcast with Adam and Jimmy. You can contact us there. We're going to try to put out some content and stuff there. Thanks for listening. Appreciate y'all.